You're listening to 340B Unscripted. Hey, everyone. You're listening to 340B Unscripted. I'm Greg Wilson here with my co-host, Rob Nahoopi. Hey, Rob, how's it going? It's going well. It's going well, although there has been a few um, hot topics since we recorded this uh, upcoming episode with Riley or the yeah. ESP program uh, that, that I think we got to cover before we can get to the episode. Lot, lots of stuff in the news, which is exciting for, for 340B stakeholders, but also, you know, some of the, the developments are, are concerning. So let's Let's jump right in. I know you, you're going to be listening to us have a conversation with uh, one of the Spendman Pharmacy team members, Riley Proats. We've had him on the con- the uh, the podcast in the past. He's our in-house expert in 340B ESP and helping covered entities kind of navigate this whole manufacturer restriction on the contract pharmacy side. So we're going to go into an in-depth discussion with him around the obstacles with uploading data um, to 340B ESP and, and some of the, the things you need to consider when you've made a decision to um, to pursue uh, re- reinstatement of 340B pricing with that platform. Um, but that, that's a, a real hot topic right now because, you know, at the time when we recorded that, we got a notification or we saw in the news that the Third Circuit Court of Appeals made a ruling on their uh, case involving AstraZeneca, Nova Nordisk, and, and Sanofi back on January 30th. Um, unanimous ruling in favor of the pharmaceutical manufacturers around the validity or the legality, I guess, of implementing manufacturer restrictions on, on contract pharmacy. So um, a win for, for pharma in terms of contract pharmacy restrictions. Rob, what did you take away from your review of the court ruling? Yeah, and I know I know we we talked a little bit about it on the podcast that's coming up, by the way, which which I think is exciting. I do have um, before I get into that response, Greg. I do have to tell everybody that um, we um, we did we don't have a new intro for Riley. So if you're a longtime listener for the podcast, the first time we had Riley on, we read an alternative bio for him. Um, we didn't have Tom for marketing create a new one. So so just want to let everyone know that we don't have a new bio for him. So no more additional information on. Um, Riley uh, Proats, um, you know, the Playboy <laughs> pharmacist for Poppy. He, he's still un- unofficially is a uh, former member of Interpol, I guess. According to <laughs> former member, yes. <laughs> so, um, but, you know, what I take away from that is it's it's kind of scary, right? Um, one thing that we'll talk about here in a second is right after that, right? And this is what happened right after we record that podcast, two more manufacturers um, were added to the list. So number 20 and 21, uh, we got right after that. And, and, you know, we probably talked a little bit on the podcast, you know, it's like a week ago, so I'm trying to remember everything we said, but, but the fact that, um, you know, that's a, that's a huge ruling, right? Does that set a precedent or do the other two court cases going on pay attention to what happened there? Because, you know, as we mentioned, I'm pretty sure we mentioned it, that if all three of those district courts rule the exact same way, then it's over. That, that's kind of it. I mean, there's other manufacturers, other lawsuits could start, but, but that sort of sets the stage that, are, that what we're going to need next is um, uh, legislative intervention, yeah. and, and we'll talk a lot, little bit about legislative stuff as well. But um, so that's the scary part. And does that mean more manufacturers do it? And, and as we've talked about, does that also mean some manufacturers change? Right? Maybe say, well, maybe we won't let you have all your three forty B pricing back for all of your pharmacies for sending data, um, which which we're starting to see some of that already. Yeah, I mean, you know, looking at the the ruling 
that that was issued, you, you know, really, you, you know, that and I'm, I'm kind of struggling to understand the the basis for the ruling. You know, they, they noted that, you know, contract pharmacy is not referenced in the statute. So HRSA can't issue any type of statutory inter interpretation without having rulemaking authority on the particular issue. And they kind of highlight that the the there's a differentiation between pricing. So the PHS statute says that manufacturers have to offer 340B covered entities, you know, 340B priced drugs, but the statute's silent around the delivery of the drug. So because the delivery of drugs isn't addressed in the statute, HRSA can't say that manufacturers are violating the law um, when a manufacturer is limiting distribution through contract pharmacy channels. Because again, delivery is not really specified in the statute. And they also say, you know, it kind of brought in this, you know, the REMS issue that we've experienced and heard covered entities experience. You've got REMS products that are set up with, you know, an FDA mandated, you know, limited distribution system. And that HRSA's position opposing restrictions to these contract pharmacy um, restrictions kind of directly conflicts with the FDA's strategy for trying to limit distribution for, for drugs that are associated with um, unfavorable safety profiles. So not a favorable ruling for, for covered entities. No, you're absolutely right. It's, um, it's, it's concerning for sure. Um, it, you know, I don't know if you have an over-under, we didn't talk about this at that time, over-under of how many more manufacturers will we see by the end of the year? Um, be added to the list and yeah and i'm well, not sure probably not a big ones so it's we've got 20 21 now and you know if you look at the top 25 you know manufacturers in the u.s by sales i mean most of those are already you know involved at this point so we're running out of manufacturers but i'm sure there are some out there that are pondering whether or not it's time to implement some some level of restriction based on this this court ruling is now a good time to talk about the two that were added just to give everyone a quick um, update on where they fell yeah, so so which two new ones are we now um, incorporating into these restrictions? So we'll we'll call Bayer number twenty. I think they announced before EMD Serrano. Um, so yeah. there's Bayer uh, number twenty, uh, and for both of these, we'll just say they're hospital only. So for our grantees listening, you are um, uh, saved for the moment. Um, we've seen that some manufacturers will switch and add grantees to the list, or even just just community health centers to the list at some point. So. Right there, just because they start off this way doesn't mean they stay. I think, Greg, that's your point. Do some that allow for ESP today, data send um, with full access back, um, pull that back to just single contract pharmacy. So Bayer, though, is starting off with um, allowing a single contract pharmacy exception, which most do. They're also allowing the health system-owned pharmacy exception. Um, and they are allowing if you send data um, to get full access back. So Bayer is allowing it. So interesting that even with the court case, Bayer said, you know what, you can. Yeah. Um, they, interesting enough, have an exclusion list of a dozen drugs. But as I read the list, it's, you know, some common ones I've heard of is Colgenate, which is uh, more a factor product, uh, Mirena, Skyla. Um, I hope yeah, that's true, Greg. Correct me if I'm wrong. Uh, yeah, I mean, these primarily buy and bill drugs that aren't historically purchased through a contract pharmacy or a retail pharmacy right, right. pathway anyway. So, yeah, they're adding some exemptions and maybe that, you know, or, or carving out certain drugs from the from the list of restrictions. But that probably doesn't have a lot of bearing in terms of you know, additional savings that covered entities are going to experience or, or not lose because of the, the restrictions. So. Right, like Zofigo's on there, right? Zofigo's a, a kind of something that's normally given through nuke med in a, in a, in a treating nuke med, uh, the one that's treating, not just diagnostic and yeah. not something you'd ever get from a contract pharmacy or a retail pharmacy yeah. that, I, that I'm aware of. Correct, yeah. But but at least they list them off. I mean, maybe maybe there's some outside, you know, bagged process that some payer might have. So, um, so that's good. Um, okay, so the other one is... EMD Serrano. 
not a again, when you talk about you know not the largest companies that's one that gosh came out of nowhere kind of left field for me yeah. really what two products rebif um um and the infer and that's an ms drug and then which is that's tough right when you're starting to hit ms drugs but also an infertility treatment um i'm not sure i'm saying this right again i feel like sometimes i gotta turn in my pharmacist license but um gonal f um infertility treatment so those two yeah. are being affected um Kind of big products if you think about those markets, but those are being pulled back. Here's the kicker. So EMDs are on a weird dimension, just hospital only. So FQHCs and grantees are safe. They are allowing a single contract pharmacy exception and the health system own exception. Yep. They are not allowing covered entities to send data through ESP to get those pharmacies back. So if you have an in-house retail pharmacy and you're having these drugs filled at a contract pharmacy anywhere for your patients, you don't, you're going to lose those. There's nothing you can really do about that. Um, yeah. If you don't have in-house retail, you can pick your best contract pharmacy, probably a specialty pharmacy, but that's it. So we're already starting to see the impact of people not offering the full data send because it's not statutorily required. Yep. So again, we're going to have a, you know, when we're done with this, this little intro, we're going to have a, a really in-depth discussion with Riley around 340 BESP. So certainly stick around if you're at a point where you're considering uploading data or you want to understand what the, you know, the the resource needs are that go into uploading data or what the challenges have been, because Riley's got fantastic level of experience and you know, certainly didn't expect to be involved in in this, but um, he, he really is, has taken the lead from from our team and, and is our in-house expert. So uh, lots of good feedback from him and insight from him in our um, episode this week. You mentioned le legislative changes coming potentially down the pike. Rob, you know, there's uh, some updated membership with regard to the Senate Help Committee. So what what's going on in Washington as far as membership in the Senate Help Committee and how that might lead to some discussion around 340B rulemaking and, and 340B law changes? Yeah, and I, I, was, I always like to give people credit, whether it's 340B Health or 340B Report or any law firms that kind of we get those reports out first. Um, 340B Report broke this one, is a great article. Um, really talking about the Senate help panel. So when you look at, you know, we have the Senate and we have the House, um, each of them have their own, um, you know, uh, uh, working groups that, that that has jurisdiction over the 340B or healthcare in general. And so for the Senate to remind everybody, it's the help panel, it's the health, education, labor, and pensions, uh, uh, I guess, committee panel, or, uh, I guess it's a panel, um, which uh, interesting, right? It's a pretty broad group. So lots of senators on there. The big kind of change is there's new leadership. So right now, uh, Senator Bernie Sanders, independent out of Vermont, but typically votes uh, um, on the Democratic side, which is why he's the chair. Um, he is the uh, seated uh, chair, so ranking member in the HELP panel. Um, yep. well, interesting enough, um, Bill Cassidy, so the ranking Republican, um, yeah. and so they're going to have to work together, right? Basically the top ranked Democrat-ish when you think about Bernie Sanders and then Bill Cassidy. Well, Senator Cassidy's kind of been more pro um, pharmaceutical manufacturers in the past, um, at least from his perspectives, um, and maybe a little bit more critical of the 340B program. And so, you know, we can expect to see some, um, and he's a provider, by the way, he's a gastroenterologist. Um, so we might be able to see some things that he's going to kind of push forward related to revamping or, or um, you know, uh, bills related to the 340B program. And, but that's where, you know, we're in pretty good hands with uh, Senator Sanders. I believe he's probably more pro 340B. He signed the letter. Um, when a lot of the um, uh, senators signed to, you know, really want to, that we're really talking about these manufacturer impacts on contract pharmacy. So he signed a, that letter that that came out that was trying to get that pricing back. Yep. But so here's, so, so right, we're not going to probably see a lot of um, anti-340B 
legislation coming out from the Senate because of uh, uh, Senator Sanders, but there are some areas that we need to think about. One, you know, think about what Bernie Sanders, kind of where he's focused on the past is, is he, he does have concerns about, say, if you're a not-for-profit and you're, um, maybe, maybe he doesn't feel you deserve your tax-exempt status. He talks about when he was a mayor. Yeah. And um, I think what, what Kim, I should probably preface it a little better. Um, he was asked recently, in fact, I think this news article broke today, about the New York Times articles and 340B hospitals. And he kind of um, went back to his, gave an example in his mayor days when there was a hospital he felt didn't deserve their tax exempt status. And he went to try and get them taxed. Um, you know, and that's probably controversial. And I guess the hospital was was meeting their needs, but but he he felt they didn't and he wanted them to start paying taxes. So So I think the area that we could, possibly see is going to be around transparency, right? That's one that I think both the Senate and the Democrats or the Republican and the Democrats can get behind is that we're going to need more transparency for hospitals because we don't know where those savings are going. Those New York Times articles probably are going to feed into that that um, that picture. And so I think we've got to be, be prepared to see some of those legislation. I'm not sure if you, you have any other thoughts as well. Greg. Yeah, no, I, I just, you know, the, the thought is that, you know, at, at some point you, you got to believe that there's going to be strong advocacy for addressing the, the contract pharmacy issues. But I think it's a little bit of a double-edged sword because with maybe some, you know, proposals to, you know, compel manufacturers to sell 340B drugs to covered entities through contract pharmacies, there's probably also going to be some, um, you know, some some transparency requirements in terms of what covered entities are doing with their savings or how much 340B volume is going through their doors. So, you know, I think covered entities that are advocating for, you know, a, a, some type of remediation within the contract pharmacy issue got to be prepared or be thinking about what is coming in the future in terms of uh, transparency and accountability with your 340B footprint. So, Greg, I, I think what is, we always like to talk about advocacy, right? It's it's sometimes we, especially you know, for those of you listening on the covered entity side, we we put our heads down. We're just going to work. We're taking care of patients. We're trying to save our health systems dollars, and we're trying to expand care and 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 charity care and all these things, but. Sometimes we do have to pause and find a little bit of time to do a little bit of advocacy. And, and so one thing we're going to do, um, Greg, I think we're going to ask um, Aiden, um, one of our producers, to to put in our show notes a link to the Senate help um, uh, panel. I just want to make sure I get that right. Senate help yeah. panel, the, the ranking members, quite a few. Um, and I'll point out that Greg has uh, Robert Casey from Pennsylvania. I have Mitt Romney. So that's a, he's a Democrat. And then I have on the Republican side, Mitt Romney from Utah. And so one thing I'm going to do um, this week is uh, reach out to Mitt Romney's office and let them know um, about my experience and expertise in 340B. And, and, and if anything comes up from in the help committee where he would like to better understand how 340B impacts our covered entity hospitals and, and FQHCs and patients in Utah, I'm going to ask him to reach out to me. I, I want to be a sounding board for him so we can better explain kind of what the impacts and, and what some of these bills could be. And, you know, I, I've done that in the past. I haven't really uh, found anything, but I'd like to start with that. And then as these bills come out, continue to reach out and say, you know, here's my perspective and just provide it to uh, him and his team. So so I definitely recommend that. Lots of states are listed here, quite a few members on, on this panel. And so we, please, if, if you have time, uh, go into the show notes, click on that link and see if one of your um, senators are on there. And if you can, just please reach out and, and start the conversation so that they know that they have people in their constituency that that um, three, that 340B is very meaningful for, and that we'd like to have input or at least provide input on um, on any bills that come out related to it. All right, I think last topic we wanted to address before we get into the 
uh, the meat of the episode. Um, Biden administration announced recently they're going to be um, announcing, or I guess, you know, terminating the public health emergency declarations in May. So uh, COVID pandemic, we're going on three years now. Um, it's been a PHE in place that had some provisions for 340B covered entities. So, you know, covered entities may want to look at, you know, those provisions that are going to likely be ending. We don't have any firm guidance yet from, from HRSA around these couple of issues, but a couple of things to note, you know, one element of uh, change that was uh, communicated by HRSA in the midst of the PHE was, you know, you may be subject to drug shortages throughout the pandemic. And in those cases, you may have to rely on purchasing drugs from a, from a GPO account or maybe a GPO private label account when you don't have access to those drugs through your 340B or WAC-based account. Historically, HRSA had expected covered entities to communicate to them or inform them when a covered entity is buying covered outpatient drugs on a GPO account for um, or as a mitigation strategy for shortages. HRSA said during the PHE, you don't need to inform us. That could potentially change in the future, right, Rob? Yeah, that, I mean, that's one thing that um, we haven't heard anything from, but it was definitely part of the PHE. So we, we're, our, our best guess right now is that that will go away. And so as a reminder, you, you still have to document everything. You just didn't have to submit it. So you know, we might have to submit it now. I personally hope that man, that's something they look at and say, well, maybe we don't need to submit this every single time. There's lots of drug shortages right now. It's not something that's got really gotten better. Yeah. And it, that does create, you know, a little bit more workload on, on her side. So if they're not staffed huge, up for that. Huge sure administrative that burden. If, if you yeah. know, covered entities are going to have to, you know, shortages haven't gotten any better. In fact, they've gotten worse throughout the pandemic. So if covered entities are going to need to start informing HRSA, anytime they're, you know, encountering a drug shortage that makes them move to, you know, a GPO-based or a private label drug, I, I feel like that's a, a really heavy administrative burden. So hopefully OPA will issue some some degree of guidance or through an FAQ with a PEXIS, you know, some, some instruction around how covered entities need to respond now that the PHE is going to be going away. Another um, aspect of uh, 340B program that came as a result of the, the COVID pandemic and the public health emergency was the opportunity to immediately register covered entities, child sites, and contract pharmacies. So um, also potential change coming there with regard to um, the, the, the urgency of getting a, a new site listed on OPACE. Any thoughts around that, Rob? Yeah, no, I mean, it's we've we've had some clients uh, utilize that, whether it's a new covered entity registration, so you're not waiting that three months or, or you know, shorter, depending where you're at, um, or a contract pharmacy or anything else. So, you know, if if still, if, if you can, um, you know, part of part of that approval process is that you have to at least state that because of COVID, you've been, you know, financially impacted and that this, you know, adding this child site or contract pharmacy or new covered entity would help. Um, offset some of those losses. That's I'm kind of the, the basic that you had to provide information, right? So that you can utilize that that exception. Um, so we've had some people use it um, out of necessity um, and because they were financially impacted or they're running in the red and, and they're doing everything they can to keep the doors open of their hospital. Um, so that's still available up to the end, but my guess is that one for sure is one that's gonna go away because otherwise they can't really register things outside of the PHE. Now, if you remember, you'll see it from time to time. Like if you know Florida has a bad hurricane, they'll allow Florida and that that specific yeah. geographical area to do it. So you'll still see some of these come up through PHEs, but not. This is the first time I've seen one, at least in my you know 12, 13 plus years in 340B, where it's been global across the entire country. Normally, it's 
restricted yeah, to the like, area that, that's having that na national, yep. you know, public health emergency as opposed to a regional or a state specific state of emergency. So right, exactly, exactly. So those two we think are going to change, but agree. We talked that we think a couple things that people think are related to it that that likely aren't going to change. Yeah, these these two things I think get conflated with the PHE, and really, you know, the, these shouldn't change. I think there's no expectation on our end that, that these are going to change. First is. You know, in June of 2020, Apexis issued an FAQ. It's 4301. This is a um, clarification that that HRSA recognizes that a new outpatient clinic um, is 340B eligible, even though that clinic may not appear on your most recently filed cost report. So, if you've got a brand new clinic that's open, you're taking care of um, patients that would otherwise meet your definition of eligibility. You have outpatient revenue and expenses booked on that clinic's cost center, but haven't seen that cost center appear because the, the cost report hasn't been filed yet. HRSA's you know, clarification in June of 2020 was you can treat that as an eligible location and you can catch up the registration on OPACE after the filing of the next cost report. Some folks have have uh, kind of misunderstood that 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 was uh, you know the the impetus for that change was the the PHE, but really that's that's HRSA's permanent kind of interpretation of 340B outpatient department eligibility timing, right? Yeah, absolutely. We've clarified it as well. It, it, prior to the FAQ coming out, it was a big question we had. Um, yeah. Texas clarified it, and then of course the FAQ came out. So that one, that one, we're pretty confident it's gonna stay around forever moving forward, which is great, right? That means you don't have that weird period where you move the, you know, you you created a new clinic, and you if you're a dish hospital, you got to buy it on WAC unless you can buy it on GPO through the exception if they're offsite. Then it's just kind of messy. So I, yeah. we really like that clarification. Yeah, I mean that's significant because depending on the the timing of the opening the clinic in your cost reporting period, you know, maybe their lag could be anywhere from nine months to, you know, in some cases, 22 months if you didn't have them lined up well. Um, that lag goes away now that HRSA recognizes those those patients are 340B eligible and the clerical element of registering those departments on OPACE can occur after the fact. So um, you know, again, that's FAQ 4301. If you've got new departments or you've got, you know, locations that you believe are going to be opening up and are under try, trying to understand when they're going to be eligible, 4301 FAQ really kind of outlines what you what you need to do. Um, another thing that came out, well, it didn't come out of the, the COVID pandemic, but, you know, I think, you know, the implementation of telehealth services really, really picked up in the midst of uh, coronavirus. HRSA recognizes telehealth visits as standard delivery of care. So, you know, even though the PHE is going away, you know, they continue to recognize telehealth as uh, a valid method for delivering care, um, just as you would see, you know, patients in the office um, on site, you know, they recognize telehealth as a, a, as a reasonable way to um, deliver care and no change in eligibility with regard to telehealth, right? That that's our guess. Another one that we haven't cl received clear confirmation from HRSA on, but um, one that uh, you know at least in some preliminary discussions or, or discussions we've seen that we don't think there's going to be a change there. That you're, you're absolutely right. That telehealth is is clinical care and, and that those visits should count towards 340B qualification. Um, you know, one thing that's great is we you know we participate and support um, covered entities through HRSA audits every single month. Uh, we usually got one to two or sometimes more. And so, you know, when the, if, if something happens after the PHE ends and HRSA changes the way they kind of enforce uh, patient visits, which we haven't seen even before um, the PHE, um, we'll definitely let people know. But, you know, our, our thought process is for sure that'll continue. Those are legitimate visits and uh, we, shouldn't, we shouldn't see a change there.
Yeah, and just one tip for covered entities that are working through those those two issues, you want to make sure those are outlined in your policies and procedures. Apexis had published kind of a template for like emergency declaration policy and procedure, and and if you've got the like the expedited eligibility for your child sites and your telehealth provisions outlined in that particular policy, you want to make sure that you memorialize those two opportunities in your your full PNP. Greg, that's a great recommendation because that that kind of confused people, right? Because uh, it was put out in that um, in, in kind of that that emergency kind of portion, it made people believe, oh, it's so when the emergency is over, then these won't qualify. And so that's a great recommendation because I just read a PNP today, and that's where it sits. And you definitely want to pull it out and just have it part of your general um, kind of qualification or wherever it fits. You want to make sure it's in that in that area so that it can continue to to be outside of an emergency situation. All right. Well, it's good catching up with you, Rob. We're going to take a quick break here. On the other side, we're going to have Riley Protz talk a little bit about 340B ESP. Dr. Protz coming up on the pod. All right. We'll be right back. The 340B Unscripted Podcast is brought to you by Spendman Pharmacy. Have you started using a referral capture solution to help maximize 340B program savings? Spenman Pharmacy delivers the industry's leading solution to help you identify existing and new referral capture opportunities. Our team manages and meets all HRSA expectations, so you'll never be at risk. Visit spenman.com and follow the pharmacy links to learn how a referral capture solution can help drive 340B savings for your organization. Hey, welcome back, everybody. We're here with Riley Prost. Riley, welcome back to the podcast. Hey, guys. Thanks for having me. I think we got the the name pronunciation right. We've we we got some flack from coworkers from Spendmend after the last time you were on the podcast saying that we butchered your last name. So apologies for that. I think we got it right now. And I'm glad that we don't have a a crazy in, intro for me this time as well. <laughs> yes. <laughs> All right. Well, I think what we're talking about today is 340B ESP. You know, I've been on a number of audits already the first part of the year here and 340B ESP and all the challenges that go along with it are, are a big topic of discussion. Covered entities are struggling with the process. They have questions about the process. And you, you've kind of inherited the residency expertise of 340B ESP at, at SpendMen. So really fortunate to have you on here and, and talk a little bit about um, kind of what you're seeing from the field with regard to 340B ESP. But maybe we take a step back and Rob, just let's kind of re recap kind of where we're at with regard to the manufacturer restrictions of 340B price drugs through contract pharmacy channels and the industry trends that we're, we're seeing. So, you know, I think this time last year, very few covered entities, I don't recall if we had anybody that we were working with that was actually uploading data into 340B ESP. And that, that really has changed over the last year to six months, I guess, would you say? I, I would. I mean, maybe we would have had one by now. I think we did. Um, I think Jake did the webinar, one of our uh, highest uh, viewed webinars at the time when he had um, a couple of our clients on and one was sending data and one wasn't. It was close to this time frame. So I think we might have had one. Uh, but yes, very, very small percentage. I think across the country, a very small rate of uh, uptake from into the 340B ESP program. And, and my health things have changed. Um, I think one good poll number um, 
um, our, uh, you know, our 340B Health uh, partners, 340B Health um, partners in the 340B space um, had a poll that they had about 42%. Um, I wasn't able to dig into that poll to see kind of what was that, that measured, right? One question you always got to think about percents are, is that all covered entities or is that just con uh, covered entities with contract pharmacy? So that might be just like hopefully just contract pharmacy and and one thing we've done too is whenever we have a webinar or something similar, we do a poll as well, and we just kind of just just kind of have that gut check as we work with our clients how many people are sending data. It sure feels like, and Riley and and Greg, tell me if this feels wrong, but well over fifty percent of our covered entity clients who are engaged in contract pharmacy are sending data at this point. I think it's above 50%. Um, now, I think there's some health systems that really help keep us closer to 50%, right? If you get a health system with 40 hospitals and they've at this point decided not to send data, that that's a big, big um, part of your denominator. When yeah. you think about individual hospitals and health systems, I think the number's very high for people that just feel like we've got to send data, we've got to engage. Um, we're losing a lot of savings and opportunities to pass savings onto patients if you have some of those charity care programs. Um, with some of the contract pharmacy vendors who make it easy for you to pass on your 340B costs to, to patients. You lose that opportunity if you don't have them engaged. And then we, so, you know, we've got right now at the time of this recording, 19 manufacturers that are implementing restrictions and utilizing or relying on 340B ESP. We'll, we'll have Riley kind of walk us through the different nuances of each of those manufacturers and, and how they're implementing their restrictions and, and relying on this, this third-party application. But um, in terms of enforcement and the legal challenges to the restrictions, we've, we've got three court cases. And, and the day that we're recording this actually um, got a, you know, you have a nod to 340B report. They, you know, published an article um, highlighting the Third Circuit Court of Appeals out of Philadelphia issued a ruling on um, this, this whole contract pharmacy uh, dispute. So Rob, tell us a little bit about what came out of the ruling from the, the Third Circuit Court in Philly. Yeah, I'm going to say it, not good news for covered entities and HHS. Um, so the third, um, it's a three-judge panel, and it is uh, the uh, U.S. Third Circuit Court of Appeals um, out of Philadelphia. And, and they were ruling on uh, AstraZeneca, Sanofi, and Novo Nordisk lawsuits challenging the legality of, of um, what HRSA is trying to enforce with contract pharmacies. And basically, they came out and said that the statute is silence. Um, in fact, they had some interesting quotes. Um, three, and again, thank you to 340 Report for getting this out. But Judge um, Bibas, I'm not sure if I'm saying that right, says statutory silences, like awkward silences, tempt speech. But courts must resist the urge to fill in words that Congress left out. So they're basically saying the way that the that Congress wrote it was silent enough that that to make an, a leap to saying contract pharmacies required or unlimited contract pharmacies required is an overstep. In fact, um, their quote from uh, Bibus's, uh, Judge Bibus is that, um, so HHS efforts to enforce its, its interpretation against the drug makers here are unlawful. So this is huge because just to remind everybody, um, there's three different um, appeals courts going on, right? So that's one. So it's one of the big ones that has three. Um, there's another one out of Washington, D.C. that will rule against Novartis and United Therapeutics uh, law cases. And then there's an appeals court in Chicago um, doing the same for Eli Lilly or Lilly. And as a reminder, if all three courts um, basically side with the manufacturers, then that kind of becomes the decision, right? There's no controversy there. If one of those three courts, so either DC or Chicago, happens to rule in favor of HHS, and you know, although the statute's silence, it's, you know, we can see the interpretation that, you know, 
covered entities need to um, be able to buy drugs at 340B for their patients. And this is just an extension of that. And where if one of the courts feel it wasn't an overreach, then and that it is lawful, that's when we have a difference in, opinion, in the courts. And that's when it would need to go to the Supreme Court more than likely to be resolved. And then the Supreme Court decision becomes final. So we kind of need, at least for the covered entity in HHS, for this to continue um, we need DC, the DC or Chicago court to, to side with um, HHS and, and the covered entities. Now, if they don't, and it's and it's a unilateral where all the courts feel the same way that HRSA doesn't have that statutory authority based on the statute being silent with con with in regard to contract pharmacy, that's when Congress would have to resolve this situation, right? And that's, that's been our fear the whole time that if that occurs, then we're going to need Congress to write legislation. And now we have a split kind of GOP and Democratic House and Senate. Um, and so what is that going to mean for actually passing legislation that would give HRSA rulemaking authority or to specifically address contract pharmacy? I think that's going to be a long shot over the next two years. So not looking good. That's that's my summary. At the end of the day, you can quote me with not looking good. Yeah, not 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 in certainly not not in favor, um, you know, uh, uh, an outlook that's positive for, for 340B covered entities. So really have to Stay tuned to what happens in the D.C. Circuit Court and then that Seventh Circuit Court of Appeals out of uh, out of Chicago. Now, but Greg, if I can say, but that's why this this podcast with Riley and the information Riley is about to share becomes so critical, because with that in mind, that tells us, OK, then the likelihood of, of 340B pricing within contract pharmacy for those 19 manufacturers being unilaterally restored without restrictions is probably low, at least for the next, my, my guess is next couple of years, um, right. unless something crazy happens. And so in that case, then really making a decision whether you're gonna send data and, and comply with that component to get most of your savings back or try and get as much savings back as you can becomes critical, especially now that Novo, I think we mentioned on a previous podcast, Novo announced recently that they're allowing pricing back if you send data. So now you can get pretty much Novo and Sanofi and Eli Lilly back. And I think that really helps. Um, but it does mean you have to send data. And, and I think now it becomes really important to understand what does that mean? What are the challenges and, and how much time does it take? So again, timely conversation. Thank Riley for being, Riley Protz for being on the podcast today. Yeah, I think, you know, just in conversations with covered entities I've worked with through audits, you know, some covered entities have kind of stalled the decision-making process. They said, well, we're, you know, we're we're able to withstand, you know, the, the limited or lack of um, savings that we're generating from our contract pharmacies. So we're going to wait for, court cases to resolve. But, you know, I think it's reasonable to expect that it's going to take a long time before, you know, three, the use of 340B ESP is not in the consideration of your operations. So, I mean, this is, you know, something that covered entities really need to address now as opposed to, to later, because it's going to take a while for this all to get sorted out from a legal or legislative perspective. Yep, I would agree. Um, just you know, point out that, that people have waited so long already, right? They, they held out as long as they possibly could, but just seeing that the lack of, of contract pharmacy revenue month after month, um, and just with this new information coming out today, it shows that there's not going to be a quick resolution. You're not going to get all of your 340B contract pharmacy, pharmacy pricing back in 2023. And so the decision, you know, to, you know, if you don't want to make the choice to submit data to ESP, but if you end up making that choice, uh, say, you know, six months down the line or a year down the line anyways, then you lost, you know, that additional uh, year's worth of, of contract pharmacy revenue. So if you yeah. think you might possibly end up going that route, um, start talking about it today, right? Or a month ago, really, but um, now, yeah. now's the best time. Yeah, so decisions need to be made. I guess once you get to that point where you've made the decision, hey, look, we're, we're going to 
you know, we're, we're going to register with 340B ESP and look at what our options are. Riley, walk us through the different options that covered entities have in terms of trying to restore access to 340B price drugs for yeah. these manufacturers. Of course, yeah. I, I do want to, you know, I think there's some confusion on the designating a single contract pharmacy compared to actually uploading your claims to ESP, um, especially because both of those situations occur in the ESP portal. Um, so people are very, so on a, there's some concern about that. So I'll touch briefly on designating single contract pharmacy, but primarily our discussion is going to be actually the uploading of the data, the concerns, issues, um, things about how to optimize that. So if you want to designate single contract pharmacies, there are, so there's 19 block manufacturers, as Greg mentioned, 17 of those let you designate a single contract pharmacy if you do not have an entity owned uh, pharmacy. So basically you get one freebie contract pharmacy. Um, I recommend, you know, if, you, if you're looking towards that route, if you haven't done that yet, to look at what is your most profitable pharmacy today. I mean, it's probably going to be your most profitable pharmacy if you unlock all those manufacturers. And so majority of those 17 manufacturers uh, you can designate that contract pharmacy on the ESP portal. Um, there's a few of them that require uh, an actual paper form, being Novo Nordisk, AstraZeneca, and Eli Lilly. Um, a key note with those is you have to have an HIN number, a health industry number, uh, which can be easily created, set up. Uh, you can go to hibcc.org uh, to register an HIN with your covered entity and that contract pharmacy. Um, it's I think it's $100 initial fee and then $50 uh, every year for renewal. Um, so those are the, the key points about designating single contract pharmacies. People who choose that route are ones who maybe only have one contract pharmacy, so there's no need to send data. Or if you've, you know, went through the, the process of, you know, the pros versus cons of sending data and decide not to, uh, you still can get some uh, contract pharmacy revenue back without having to send your data. And then on the flip side, you know, maybe you've already done that process and you're saying, okay, there's still not enough yet. Or you just want to go all the way and say, look, I, we're, we're really hurting here. We need to upload our data. Um, of those 19 manufacturers, 13 of those will give you pricing, uh, 340 pricing at all the manufacturers, at all your contract pharmacies, if you upload um, those claims. Uh, as, as Rob mentioned, Novo Nordisk being one who wasn't included in that 13, but they just flipped and are allowing all contract pharmacies pricing starting January 1st of this year. Um, and then if you're not a hospital, because not everybody is, for the clinics, there's seven manufacturers that are blocking. Uh, six of those are allowing, opening up basically if you upload data to ESP. Um, AstraZeneca being the one uh, that does not. But if you're a clinic and you don't have a, a hospital owned, or a clinic owned pharmacy, then you could still designate AstraZeneca for one of your, your contract pharmacies. Yeah. So, so you know, both both types, you know, hospital and grantee covered entities impacted and, you know, in need of making a decision around this. What One question I had, Riley, is the, I can't remember. It's been a while since I've looked, but some of the manufacturers offer an exemption for health system or kind of commonly owned contract pharmacies. Is that the case still? Yeah, I don't remember the specifics on, you know, if it's a covered entity individual or health system specific that they've, I think they're, they've updated their policies as well um, to, to change. And so yep. I, I don't have the specifics on which ones. So another thing to, to investigate as you're looking at how you're going to be making these designations is to you know determine whether or not you might qualify for an exemption for contract pharmacies that are registered on OPACE for your covered entity, but are wholly owned by uh, the health system or a, a parent organization. Rob, let's take a step back. You know, covered entities ready to, to move forward with registering on 340B ESP. What, what goes into the decision-making process with regard to whether or not you upload data. I know that was a really sensitive area when 340B ESP first came around is should we 
be sending our data outbound. What's, what, what are your thoughts on the decision-making process that goes into deciding whether or not it's time to start submitting data? Yeah, and you know, and this is where we we're, we're neutral, right? We we understand we we definitely can kind of sympathize and empathize on both sides of the the decision here, where quite a few covered entities and some of our clients are still not sending data, and it's a and it's a business decision, even though they realize they're missing out opportunities for savings for additional three forty savings. It's it's sort of principle, um, right? That they don't want to send this data to the manufacturers because they're unaware or unsure what the downstream effects could be. And as just a reminder to everybody, we, we really don't know. In fact, even after this time, we're, we still, as far as I know, haven't seen a significant amount of downstream negative effects, but there's always a risk, right? You're talking about manufacturers collecting data and then they're then not paying rebates to both Medicare and uh, private commercial plans. And that likely will have some repercussions at some point. So if you're a large health system or uh, you know a small to medium health system or even a big hospital, and if you're self-funded, not, not even self-funded, but your payer rates for your, your pharmacies, even your contract pharmacies, what does that mean? Like when, when those rebates don't get paid to the payers, are they going to try and decrease reimbursement? That gets confusing because there's all this rules around um, – you know, uh, not having uh, or, or reimbursement issues that different states are passing laws around reimbursement um, and what what payers can do. Um, I guess we're called discriminatory reimbursement for 340B. And some states don't allow that. Some not all states have passed laws. And so it's kind of kind of messy um, of what can occur. Um, but all those things need to be taken into account. In addition, that you are sending data um, to manufacturing. You have to be careful because if some of that data has PHI in it, yeah. um, what does that mean? And then the other component is. Um, you know, time and effort. I think one thing that Riley will probably get to uh, in this in this uh, podcast episode today is it, this isn't a, hey, send data and then you're good. You have to do a lot of monitoring. And I know this is things we've talked about, but do you have the right resources? If you're going to do it and take on that, you know, potentially extra risk, do you have the resources to make sure you maximize the savings from, from, from sending data to the ESP program? So I think all those things have to be taken into account. And I'm sure more, I don't know, Riley, uh, Greg, any other um, additional things to think about? Um, yeah, I mean, I can jump into, I guess, all the concerns that I think of. There's, there's plenty of concerns for sure. Um, but I think the one that you just touched on is the one that when I have, have calls with, with folks that are, are clients or they're on an audit and they say, hey, let's just have the ESP conversation, I, I jump in. Their main concern is the time and effort. You know, they're already stretched extremely thin, um, you know, having difficulty hiring as is and saying, oh, now I need to dedicate some of our resources, some of our FTE towards uploading data where I don't have those resources. Um, it is tough for them, right? Um, and there's... You, know, you could hopefully, you, there's ways to do it as well. You could just, you know, export the data out of your TPA and upload it to ESP and close your eyes and hope that the pricing returns. Um, but we've seen there's so many errors in the process as is that, you know, that strategy isn't going to work. You know, there's a lot of, you know, issues with ESP and the, you know, the way that they're presenting data to you and then how they're communicating with wholesalers and manufacturers that, you know, the strategy of just saying, oh, it's, you know, it's not that much time to just export the data and upload it twice, twice a month, um, maybe half hour here, half hour there. Unfortunately, you're, you're not going to optimize at all um, if you choose that strategy because we've seen so many issues and um, just so many instances of, of clients who are saying, look, I did everything correctly, but now I don't have pricing or I had pricing, but I lost it for whatever reason, um, which I can go into as well. Any thoughts, or Robert, Greg, on those? Yeah, I mean that's you know, you know certainly a, a challenge that I've heard from clients that I've worked with. Do we have any benchmark data as far as the amount of resources it's taking our covered entities to manage this? We don't, um, but we've we've estimated, and you know I've 
taken on this roles and responsibilities for clients. And so I can tell, you know, just based on my own um, processes that, you know, I think, I guess it depends on which stage they're in. Um, yeah. You know, if you first decide to submit data, there's a lot of things you have to clean up with your TPA and, you know, getting the pricing back in your wholesalers. So you're checking on pricing more regularly. Um, and so I estimate multiple hours per week uh, just because you want to optimize it as much as you can. Um, and then let's say you fast forward six months down the line where your TPAs, all the qualification criteria is cleaned up. Um, your wholesalers are all correct. Ideally, they, you haven't lost pricing again. Um, then it really does become, you know, twice a week, twice a month, sorry, you're, you're uploading your claims out of your TPAs. And so the amount of time decreases uh, as you get, I guess, further along um, in the process. I, I think that's that's what's key, though, is understanding how much time it's going to take. And this, of course, depends how many contract pharmacies you have. Um, how many, you know, how what, what your volume is in those contract farms to determine how much data you're actually sending. So lot, lots, lots of other factors you probably need to look at on, on volume-wise, but number of contract pharmacies and um, is probably one of the bigger determinations for how busy you're going to be. Because as we've identified, Riley, even just kind of looking at, you know, the way you approach it, really you have to look at every single 340B contract pharmacy account you have to monitor if that pricing came back. Because the way the manufacturers are giving back pricing can differ between the manufacturers. Some are just, once you send data, they're giving you access to all. Some are just specific to the NDC. Some are specific to the NDC and the contract pharmacy. And so that's why it does really need to be monitored. And and although, we, you know, our whole goal with this podcast is really to provide ideas and, and discussion around things, we also like to help provide solutions. And a lot of times the way we work at Spendman Pharmacy is if there's a need in the marketplace and we can fill it, we try and fill it. So although we never intended to get into the business of uh, supporting clients with their ESP program, Riley over time has just seen that need. So if you are in a place as a covered entity, you're like, I don't have the resources, but there is a significant amount of savings and I hate leaving it on the table and you want help reach out, we can have a discussion, kind of either just for sure how to do it. And if you need resources, we can talk about how we can probably support you there. So um, again, if, if that's a business decision you make, um, you know, reach out, we can at least help walk you through it and even provide resources if needed. Riley, I want, I want to get kind of a little more detail from you around just the mechanics. We're, we're looking at primarily biweekly data uploads from each of the different TPAs that you have set up for contract pharmacy. Yep. Yeah. Let's, let's just, let's start from the very beginning. Uh, you've done the, it's, you know, January, 2023, you've spent enough time losing your contract pharmacy revenue. You finally talked with legal and other leadership folks saying, look, it's, 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 we've decided it's okay to submit our data. What do we do first? Um, so first thing you need to do is if you don't have a login to 34B ESP, it's pretty simple to do that. They've, you know, scrubbed and pulled OPACE data. So your current entity should be in their ESP portal. Um, you, you log into that. And then step one is uploading your, your data, right? And so it depends, once again, yeah, number of contract pharmacies, number of TPAs, which which data to pull out of each TPA. A majority of the TPAs today have created a specific file that's you know for those bi-monthly, every two-week uploads that you're supposed to put into uh, the ESP portal. So depending on the number of TPAs, uh, depends on how much time it takes. And then there's seven required fields that you need to make sure are in your data that, that you export. Um, and that's why they built those specific uh, reports because those fields should be in there. But sometimes there's too many fields. There's, you know, let's, for example, the only PHI that you're required to submit is the RX number. So patient name, date of birth, all those things you can and probably should uh, delete out of the, the file, the Excel file that you've exported before uploading the data. So then that takes more time. So let's say you finally started uploading, let's say you have three different TPAs, you uploaded three different files um, at the first of the month. And then you can sit and wait and hope that you have your pricing back. But I recommend, you know, knowing exactly what you've submitted 
and should you have the pricing back. Um, and so in the ESP portal, you can see the files that you've submitted. If you then export those files back, the claims tell you one, what the NDC was and what the provider or NPI of the pharmacy was. So then you can use that information to determine, have I submitted a claim for this specific pharmacy for this specific drug? And as one of you guys alluded to, um, that's important because not every TPA treats the ESP upload process the same. Um, I, they use, some of them use uh, chain logic. For example, if you have you know, a handful of CVS or Walgreens stores, if you upload one uh, claim, Merck is a good example. If you upload one uh, Merck claim, then you're gonna get pricing of all those stores. Um, Eli Lilly is an example of, if you, you upload a Eli Lilly claim, a Trulicity, um, out of one of your CVS stores, you're only going to get your 340 price at that one store. You're not going to get your 340 price at the rest of your CVS stores. So then that makes it so you have to track every single contract pharmacy wholesaler account and every single manufacturer to see if you have pricing or not. Um, and so I, I do a grid for folks and we do basically a project management um, tool where we grid out all the manufacturers, the 13 that give you pricing, um, and then all of your wholesaler accounts. Um, and if you have, you know, if you have a lot of contract pharmacies, that means you have probably all three of the big wholesalers. And so you're doing a lot of checking on pricing. Um, and you need to know if you have pricing at that account, because then you have to go back into your TPA and ensure if you have qualification locks in place. So they could, you could have a lock from accumulations or a do not order lock that locks them from being bought. Um, and every TPA is different there. Um, so maybe there's one lock or two locks in place. Sometimes in your TPA, you can do that yourself. And sometimes you have to reach out to an account representative to make those changes. Um, you don't That's want them to make all the changes at the same time because, you know, if you don't have pricing at all of the stores, then it's possible that you could use up one of your accumulations and buy at the non-340 price, uh, which makes it even more complex. That's interesting because, I mean, those decisions about blocking NDCs, you know, is really made out of, you know, the initial response to 340B ESP and covered entities saying, hey, look, we're not going to be uploading data. We're not going to be participating in this. So we need to make some front end adjustments in, in some of those decisions probably need to be unwound at this point if you're trying to send data in now to re uh, to reinstate pricing, right? Yeah, exactly. I mean, some folks have been holding on to accumulations for the last two years, hoping that, you know, maybe if something changes, they'll get to make all those purchases. Um, but all of these uh, manufacturers have put in, majority of them have a 45-day rule from dispense state, essentially saying, if you're uploading an eligible claim to the ESP portal, uh, it needs to have a, a dispense state within the last 45 days or that's going to be a non-conforming claim. And so what the what ESP is doing is they're looking at a ratio of purchases at that NDC and that contract pharmacy account over claim submitted. And so, you know, let's look at that one CVS store, that one Trulicity example. You need to have an equivalent amount of claims or claims submitted to the purchases you have at that account. And if you have too many purchases compared to your claims submitted, they're gonna flag that account and at risk, basically saying, if you don't fix this ratio in the next 30 days, then we're gonna remove the pricing. So you did all that work to get your 340 pricing, and now they're gonna remove that. So they put those 45 day dispense date rules or policies in place to prevent you from making purchases off of your historical accumulations. Wow. And we've seen a lot of issues. I mean, people are talking to me, you know, that's what a lot of times they reach out, they've been doing it, being able to do this themselves, but then they get this at flag risk. And there's not a lot of information on what the drug is, you know, is it, you know, let's think about chain logic again. They're gonna, this, these CVS stores, uh, or is one example, you've got you know, all the chains, Walmarts, Walgreens, whatever it may be. Um, you, let's say you've chain logic got your pricing at all of the, that, that manufacturer, but you also can have the opposite effect where you chain lose pricing because you have 
um, an irregular amount of accumulations to purchases. And so people are coming in, you know, really worried that they're losing all this pricing these manufacturers that they've worked so hard to get. Um, and there's some strategies you can put in place. You know, you can reach out to ESP and ask, okay, what's the specific drug? What's the specific store? You know, then, you know, really just spend a lot, once again, more resources, time and effort into checking on, okay, did I upload enough claims? Like, did I miss a couple of dates? Did I miss an upload in general? Um, and then working through that. Uh, we've had a lot of success, um, but I, I mean, I have seen plenty of examples as well of people losing pricing at specific stores and manufacturers due to this issue. Let's pay close attention to 340B Health's um, exchange. So the email exchange, and, and it was probably a couple of months ago, but somebody commented on there that, you know, the 340B ESP data upload process is fraught with with error. What, what kind of errors are folks encountering, even though they're following the procedural requirements? What, what, where are the gaps in how the process is working? Yeah, I mean, there's examples. One error that we see quite often is you've uploaded a claim at a store uh, and everything looks good in the portal, but you still don't have pricing back. And they tell you five to 10 business days. It's been, let's say three weeks. And there's just, for whatever reason, whatever communication process that ESP has with the wholesalers or the manufacturers just doesn't come through. And you you basically should have gotten the pricing because you've provided eligible claims that, you know, according to their policies, they should give back 340 pricing, but that doesn't occur. So then you have to put in support tickets and give them specific examples. And that's why I have, you know, a grid in my head and on paper as well saying, look, I deserve this pricing. Um, so we have instances there. We also have instances of these at flag risks showing up uh, because that that comparison they're doing to purchase and claims submitted. Um, it's really just, it takes, you know, just the next 15 days of data to clean up that flag, but people have spent you know a lot of dedicated time into trying to identify what this, what's the root cause of this error showing up. But it just you know maybe it was just because you know they just didn't have the next 14, 15 days of claims, and so that's another thing. We I think they're preemptively flagging accounts uh, because you know for whatever whatever process they have in place is showing hey this is this doesn't equal you know one doesn't doesn't equal a ratio of one. Um, but we're, we're seeing that, you know, the client's not doing anything extra not doing anything different in their next round of uploads, but the flag is getting removed. It sounds like the, the resources that you need to invest in managing this, you know, there's just as many resources on the back end validating your receipt of 340B prices as there is resources needed to get all the data prepped up on the front end, right? Yeah, exactly. And, you know, there's resources dedicated to you lose your pricing according to ESB, but we haven't even talked about how, you know, look, wholesalers, sometimes you lose your contract price just because there's errors on their end as well. And so you may think you have the pricing, but the wholesaler, you know, unless you're checking and no one has yeah. the time to check every NDC all the time, hey, do I have this price? So um, we have a couple tools that we use, um, you know, export mass amounts of data and compare, hey, did you have the 340 price a month ago, but now you don't? Uh, we flag that as well. And just to help, to help folks out because we're, we're seeing errors all over the place, unfortunately. Yeah, so you might be uploading data correctly, using conforming data, getting it in within the right window of time. But if there's a contract load error at the wholesaler level, you're sunk. Right. And if you if you look on the ESP portal, it shows qualified, showing all greens, um, then you'll think you're good. But yeah. uh, because they're, they're telling the, the wholesaler, yes, you're good, but there's still some sort of a mishap there. Man, it's so complicated. <laughs> I was just saying, as, as Rob alludes to, I'll talk a little bit more about you know how we've unfortunately yeah gotten into this this service this process because we've had clients saying, look, you know I don't know what I'm doing and I definitely do not have the time and resources available to do this. And unfortunately, um, you know being you know the consultants end, we are able to see. And that's why we're so good with our auditing, right? Because we see time and time we see a bunch of purse audits, so we we get to gain that experience more than someone else who you know has one purse audit every you know five years. And so same thing with ESP. I've 
unfortunately, been able to help, you know, 15 plus clients in this regard. And so we've got a pretty efficient process. So if anyone, you know, I've this interest, uh, increased interest in the last few months, but if anyone's listening now and hasn't reached out, happy to talk with folks about kind of what the process we put in place. And, you know, our, our what I, I've kind of alluded to is we basically become project managers and saying, you know, the first phase of deciding to upload claims is the most important because you need to clean up or make sure the correct data is going to ESP, um, make sure that your wholesaler contract pricing gets uh, flipped to have those PHS contracts loaded and get the 340 price, and then ensuring that your TPA qualification criteria is correct as well, um, which, you know, is I think a part that a lot of people uh, miss and they just say, hey, they reach out to the account rep and say, hey, please un unlock everything. That's not always the correct strategy. Um, and so we, we spend a lot of time in that, we call it phase one of just making sure that everything is cleaned up. It takes a couple months, uh, especially if you're looking to see replenishment, you know, in actual increased revenue, it takes probably three months until you get actual, you know, dollars going back up again. Uh, but then we'll, we'll take over the uploading of those claims for them and just managing the whole, the whole gamut, really, you know, putting the support tickets, getting access to the TPAs and making sure that all, all of those are clean. Um, and people still want to stick around. And then we go to the, more of that maintenance phase where we're still uploading those claims every two weeks and we're checking on those wholesaler prices to make sure that you haven't lost the pricing for whatever reason. And we're digging into those at-risk flags and checking on why you know certain uploads are non-conforming. Um, so if anyone here is you know listening to this and thinking, yeah, it's probably it's about time, but I definitely don't have the resources available, that's kind of where we we figured we can help out folks. Fantastic. I mean, we we joke here that you know, at least at Spedman, we you know, and those of us that are in the 340B space, nobody nobody ever like seeks out an opportunity really to work in the 340B world to start, you know, it's like you just as a pharmacy director or manage, manager or a, a business analyst, you maybe you just, you know, inherit oversight of the 340B program at your organization. I feel like, you know, Riley's dealing with the inception of this type of inheritance where nobody probably in 340B had aspirations to work directly with you know this 340b uh, esp platform and, and riley just kind of inherited <laughs> the the oversight of how we're we're uh supporting clients through that so riley just fantastic work helping helping folks out yeah thank you i mean rob and i both did the similar health system pharmacy administration residency we probably both thought we were going to be directors of pharmacy and had no idea we'd be in the 340b space and definitely didn't think that i was going to become an, an esp expert on um, the last six months but here we are yeah, so I guess, you know, if, if you're listening to this and, and you're struggling with kind of wrapping your hands around all of the the nuances of um, the, the 340D ESP process, don't don't hesitate to reach out. We've got email for the podcast listed in the podcast notes, 340B unscripted at spendmen.com. You know, if you want to get connected with Riley and talk about um, and all the challenges you're experiencing, don't, uh, again, don't hesitate to to reach out. Yeah, and I'll be the first one to admit I'm I'm a I'm a bad salesman. I'm a pharmacist, so I, I'm happy to jump on on any call and tell you how you know the best way you can do this yourselves. Um, you know, a lot of times I'll jump on a call and I'm, I basically talk people out of working with us because I'm thinking like you have the resources to be able to do this here, and we just send you in the correct direction um, and give you a couple tools uh, to be able to do this yourself. So happy to to jump on a call with anybody. Yeah, I mean, even during our audits, I know you know a few clients that I've audited, Riley, have had you come on come on the you know audit call and just take 15 minutes to help answer some questions. If you're out there working with with one of our auditors, you, you know, we, we can certainly, you know, build in some time to talk about 340B ESP and engage Riley if we need to, um, to help answer questions. So, you know, I absolutely love kind of hearing what covered entities are, are dealing with and getting their perspectives on this and all things 340B, so. 
Yeah, and, and and one more thing too is if you're still in the decision-making process, uh, right? So talked a lot about today, if you're sending data, here's some things to look at. But if you still, as an organization, are, are trying to figure out, okay, well, what is our potential savings or what, are, you know, and maybe you've already identified that, but having kind of that that senior uh, leadership discussion about should we send data or not if you have a 340b um, committee that meets quarterly or on some cadence and you and that's where you have your authorizing official and senior leadership there definitely a topic to continue to bring up and if, if you'd like someone from our team if you have an auditor if you're already uh, with services today or if not reach out greg myself riley uh, someone else from our leadership team can hop on that call and kind of share some of the pros and cons of sending data, help answer questions that people have so you're not trying to answer these things alone. Um, you know, we're, we're here because we live and breathe 340B, and, and so if we can be a resource for you, definitely let us know, because I think this is a big decision, and as we talked about at the beginning of the um, of this this um, session, you know, with, with the way the court case went today, and it's, uh, I guess I should point out it's January 30th as of the day of the recording, we're a little ahead, and, and and just so you guys know, we do an intro later on, so, so in our intro, we might have talked about some newer, more recent topics, but that's kind of how we record it, so we have time for post-production. But that's a, that's a, that was a huge law case today. So, you know, definitely, again, I think this becomes more of an important issue because at least from our perspective, the ESP program and the manufacturers removing pricing from contract pharmacy with with the with with exceptions, um, I think is going to be at least here for the short term, um, next one one likely two plus years if not longer. So, um, with knowing that, um, I think it might make the decision, um, you know, making a decision becomes more pertinent um, that yeah. that you make a decision, especially if you're in a, find yourself in a financial um, place where where you're needing to find savings to keep the doors open of the hospital or your FQHC. Um, I know for a lot of FQHCs and grantees, contract pharmacy is where their savings are because they don't have as many administered drugs. And again, this becomes important for taking care of patients. And so trying to do the right thing is, is, is this is a gray area, right? The right thing's not black and white in this case. And so trying to identify what that is, is, is going to be important. Yeah, I think that's a great suggestion. You know, this is a really, really pertinent topic to take back to 340B steering committee or oversight committee. I mean, you got to look at, you know, where you are at in terms of impact from the, the manufacturer restrictions. What is the, the opportunity cost? to you um, by not having access to 340B priced drugs at these um, contract pharmacies. What are the terms of service with 340B ESP? So Riley, as you mentioned, you know, early on, one of the big concerns was, look, we are uncomfortable sending our data outbound. And, you know, there's good reason to be concerned about that. We've seen, you know, a number of vendors in the 340B space um, be subject to data breaches. Um, so that's certainly a concern in the terms of service around what's going to happen with your data need to be reviewed um, internally by legal or compliance. Um, and I think you also want to talk, you know, kind of on a more global level, what does all of this data out there mean to um, 340B? Keep in mind that you know, Second Sight, which manages 340B ESP, is intertwined with the Berkeley Research Group that puts out a lot of, um, you know, adversarial research against um, the 340B program. So you have to believe that the data that's being collected here is going to have some type of, you know, impact on 340B policy proposals in the future. You know, not again to say that you should or shouldn't participate, but those are really the, I think, the the pillars of the discussion that need to be addressed through the 340B leadership groups. All right. I think we've covered everything we want to today with 340B ESP. Rob, Riley, do you guys have any last items to bring up or things you want to share? 
just want to thank you guys for having me. I hope uh, if I come on again, provide updates, it's more positive updates than we were able to share today is the goal. But who knows? <laughs> they, they, make, they make the rules, right? And we're just kind of following along with whatever they say. Unfortunately, that that is true. We're we you know we're we're playing the hand we were dealt um, is the best way to say it. So that's the best advice we can make. You know, look at your cards, see what you have, and you know if you need support, we're here for you. And um, and I guess one last plug is uh, you know definitely keep keep informed. Um, it's a changing environment. Um, the manufacturers, um, even in the ESP portal, where a lot of the letters that they've written are in there, and not, sometimes not all the letters, and some not all the information's in there. So uh, read what's there, and then also reach out to your, you know, whoever's supporting your program. And if you need support, let us know. More than happy to help. And um, and again, just we're here to provide information and help you make the best decision you can for your covered entity. All right. Well, that's a wrap for this week's uh, episode. Riley, thanks again for joining us. Always um, happy to have a member of the Interpol police force uh, <laughs> join us. <Popping> pills. <laughs> All right. Thanks, everyone, for listening. Um, have, a, have a great week. Take care. Thank you. Thanks for listening to 340B Unscripted. Subscribe today on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts.